Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, If you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, We are glad that you are with us. And and I do just want to reiterate uh, what Andrew said earlier. Uh, If if you are visiting, uh, if this is your first Sunday and uh, you didn't realize we were having a picnic afterwards, or, or maybe you've been coming for a lot of weeks and you forgot we're having a picnic and you didn't RSVP, you are still welcome to come. (laughs) We would, in fact, love for you to attend uh, at Starkey Park. So uh, whether you RSVP'd or not, there will be plenty of food, um, and we would be happy for you to be with us. Um, Well, this morning, uh, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there. You can also follow along in your order of service, uh, 1 Peter 2. And in the book of 1 Peter, we've been seeing that Peter has been addressing us in a particular way, a a strange way, uh, maybe to our ears. He's been calling us exiles and sojourners. He's been saying that God's people, the church, are to live a distinct way within the world, in a way that is so distinct that we would not look like the world, that we would look like foreigners in a foreign land, that we would look like strangers in a strange land. And in the, the uh, portion that we are in, in First Peter, Peter's now applying this idea to some particular ways of life, some particular situations and contexts. Last week, we heard uh, what it looks like to be exiles in this world in relation to the political authorities over us, the governing, governing authorities. Next week, we'll look at what it looks like to be exiles in the context of marriage, how our our relationships between husband and wife to be distinct from the world. And this morning, we're looking at it in regards to servants and masters in our places of work. And this is very appropriate for us because every one of us has a boss or have had a boss. Some of you are bosses, and so you have people under you in your places, vocational places. And so this, this text is very appropriate. It indicates, it shows us, it teaches us how it is that we are to live as exiles in our places of work. So let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we are in need this morning. We are in need of you. Father, I need you to uh, work and to move, that my words would be clear. We are all in need of you to uh, give us attentive ears and listening hearts. We, We are all in need of your grace this morning, and so we ask for it. We ask that you would be gracious to us, 
that you would allow us to see the wonders of your word, that we would hear the beauties of your gospel, and that we would know what it is to live as your people. So help us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there's a TV show that's on network television right now. It's been on for a number of years. It's called Undercover Boss. I imagine maybe some of you have seen this show. Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't watched it in a number of years, so I have no idea if it's good anymore. I don't know if it's gone downhill, uh, you know, if it peaked at like season two or, or not, so I, I don't know. But, but the premise of Undercover Boss is that uh, a CEO of a major corporation, like Allied Moving or Waste Management, they go undercover. So they take off the suit and they don the apparel of, of the worker, of the laborer in their corporation. And they go undercover, not telling anyone who they truly are so that they can see what life is really like for these people in their corporation. And so one example, one of the episodes I did see was of waste management. So this company that collects our trash. <laughs> and, uh, and this CEO, he, he went out and he worked with those who are picking up trash. And, and one day he spent a day working with a man who works at a landfill site. And his job is to pick up the trash that is blowing around, right? So the trash gets dumped at the landfill site, but not all of it remains there. It starts getting blown around. And so, so he has to walk around with a bag and he picks up trash and he sticks the trash in the bag. And that's his job. That's all he does all day, every day. And this is what the CEO is having to do. So he's undercover and he's walking around, he's filling up the trash bag and it's taking forever for him to do this job and this guy who has no idea who he's talking to is like, I don't know if you're really cut out for this. <laughs> you might want to find a different, different employment. <laughs> so the next day, the CEO, he's no longer picking up trash, he's now driving around with a woman who drives one of the trash trucks. And he sits with her and he talks with her and asks her questions about her job, like, like how, many, how long is your route and, and how fast do you have to go and when do you stop for bathroom breaks? And she's like, stop for bathroom breaks? No, 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 the company makes us have to go, go, go. I don't have time to stop. Well, if you know the show, if you've seen it before, you know that at some point the, the CEO or the COO or the CFO or whoever in upper management that has gone undercover, he dons his suit again. She returns to the boardroom. She no longer is working in, in the lower uh, management or labors of the company. And at some point, all these people that they work with come in, and, and the interviewers ask them, like, do you remember Bill, who you were working with? Oh, yeah, he was horrible, but a nice guy, you know, these sorts of things. And then they walk in, and they see the CEO. And they're shocked, they're surprised, because it's Bill or Bob or Susie or whoever it is. And, and they can't believe it, that they were working alongside the CEO. And... And if you've seen the show, you know that, that oftentimes the boss will start saying things like, I, I appreciate how well you worked. I appreciate how faithful you are. And, and they reward them for their faithfulness. So in Waste Management episode, the guy who's picking up trash, he had a heart for disabled people. And so they put him in the healthcare division of Waste Management to work with those with disabilities in the company. Right, a great reward for this man's faithfulness. The woman who's driving the trash truck, she gets promoted and gets a raise, and he made sure that she had bathroom breaks from here on out. And everybody's happy, and everybody's excited, and it feels good. It tugs at your heart, right? The people, they're crying because their faithfulness has been rewarded, and sometimes maybe even us who are watching, we, we cry a little bit too, maybe. We get a little misty because, because it's good TV, right? Faithfulness is rewarded. But the problem is, is that good TV, reality TV, well, maybe that's an oxymoron because, 
it's not really reality, is it? I mean, that's the way things should be, that faithfulness gets rewarded, that people who do good work, that they're treated well. But we know that the reality is, is that oftentimes in our places of work, faithfulness gets ignored. Faithfulness gets passed over. Faithfulness may even be treated with disdain and ill. Right? That's the reality that maybe many of us have even experienced. That's the reality that Peter's hearers are experiencing. You see, that's the setting in which these servants of verse 18 are finding themselves. They're in these places of work, of labor, where their faithfulness is not being rewarded. In fact, the goodness that they are, that they are um, experiencing, that they are showing to their bosses, to their master, it is being received with ill treatment. That's their setting. These servants are being treated poorly. But before we go on, we, we need to understand who these servants are. You see, these servants, they, in some of our translations perhaps, maybe if you have a different translation than the ESV, it might say slaves. Or maybe you've seen that before. Slaves be master to your, or slaves be subject to your masters. And we have to understand what Peter is meaning. There, there is that word that is being translated servants. It, it could be translated slave. There are a few different Greek words that can be translated that way, and this is one of them. But, but it's appropriate that it's translated servant because in this context, Peter is not referring to the chattel slavery that we often think of, right? When we think of slave, we think of the transatlantic slavery, right? Transatlantic slave trade. That's where we go in our minds, and, and rightfully so because of the history of our country. But that's not the kind of person that Peter is talking about here. He's not talking about servants or slaves that are such because of their ethnicity or their race. In fact, the Bible speaks against the selling of men in 1 Timothy 1. And so the transatlantic slave trade is completely um, inappropriate regarding the biblical standard. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about slaves in that way. He's talking about servants or household labor. See, that's what this word is specifically tied to. You see, in Roman culture, there were three classes of people. There was the freeman, the, the Roman citizen, who had full rights and protections under the law. They were the highest class. Then there was the freedmen, who had restricted protections, but still had autonomy. But then there was the servant class, the slave class. These were men and women who were employed as managers or household laborers. And they were in these positions often not because of their ethnicity or their race, but they were in these positions because of debt or because they were being punished for, their, for a crime that they had committed. And they were required to be in these positions, but they weren't necessarily perpetual. Oftentimes, these slaves, these servants, could buy back their freedom. They could pay off their debt. There would be a day when they would no longer be servants or slaves. And yet, they still came under the authority of another. Even though they weren't slaves like we often think of them, they still could be treated poorly, and often they were. They were treated poorly. In fact, some of them were experiencing such poor treatment that Peter says that they feel sorrow in verse 19. They endure, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. 
They were experiencing poor treatment from their masters. These Christian laborers were treated poorly, not because of wicked things that they were doing or evil things that they were doing, but, but the very opposite, because they were doing good. Now, what are they to do with that? As they find themselves in these situations? I mean, that is unfair treatment. Every one of us would say that. You're doing good and you're treated this way. How are they supposed to respond? How should we respond? Now, now I, I, I would venture to say that none of us are in our places of work because uh, we are paying back a crime that we committed. <laughs> we might think that way, you know, like in an esoteric sort of a way, right? Like this is making up for all the crimes that I've committed that no one knows about. But, but, but we know that that's not what is happening, right? Our situation is different, and yet oftentimes, I know some of you, in fact, have experienced unfair treatment in your places of work. That some of you have sought to do good for your company, and yet you have been passed over and ignored. That you've even been mocked for ethical behavior. I have friends who, who were treated ill, who were treated poorly in their places of work because they sought to do what was right. What are you supposed to do then? Well, Peter tells us what our calling is. Not only does he tell us what the setting is, but he tells us what our calling is. It is to endure. That's what he says. Three times in verses 19 and 20, he says that we are to endure. He speaks of enduring. And so what does enduring look like? Well, it looks like submitting with respect. That's how he began in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, right? I mean... I've had bosses in my life that, that were easy to respect. They were honorable. They treated me with dignity and, and honor. And, and they sought my good and wanted to develop me as a person and as a laborer and an employee. And so it was easy to show them honor. It was easy to show them respect. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Do you hear that? We're supposed to show respect even to those employee, employers, those bosses, those people in authority over us that, that treat us unfairly. That we're still supposed to honor them. That's what we're called to do. And that is very different than the world around us. Right? Because it would be very easy for us in those situations to show disdain for that boss, to speak poorly about them with other employees, to, to undermine their authority to others. And yet what Peter says is that as Christians, as exiles in this world, we're to submit to them with respect. But it's not only submitting with respect, we're also to actually seek their good. We're to pursue grace, seek out grace for them. Look at verses 19 and 20. Peter says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a gracious thing. Now, literally in the Greek, it just says grace. This is grace when mindful of God. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace in the sight of God. That when we endure, Peter's saying we are being gracious. That we are showing grace to those that have treated us poorly. 
but what is grace? We, we need to define that. So if we were, I was to ask you, if we were in a Sunday school class, and I said, what is grace? Let's write up some thoughts on the board. I would imagine that at least one of you would at some point say that grace is unmerited favor, right? Who's heard that definition? Of course you have. It's a great definition. It's a great place to start. Unmerited favor. Grace is God's unmerited favor to his people. And it's a wonderful definition because it gets at the fact that there's nothing that we can earn, right? God's grace isn't something that we earn. It's not something that we merit. It's kind of like this summer when I was hanging out with some friends. It was a bunch of guys. We, we hadn't seen each other in a number of months, some of us in a number of years. One of my friends, I hadn't seen him in, in probably about six or seven years. And so it was wonderful to be with him, right? We're talking, we're laughing, we're catching up, we're reminiscing, we're updating, we're talking about hopes and dreams. It's just a wonderful night. And, and at the end of the night, I go to pay my bill, and the waitress says, don't worry about it. Your friend got you. My friend, this guy who I hadn't seen in seven or eight years-ish, he had picked up my tab. He left early and he had picked up my tab and, and I had no idea and I had done nothing to earn it, right? It was unmerited favor. But biblical grace is actually much deeper than that because unmerited favor can almost sound like we're in this neutral position, right? Like I did nothing to earn my friend's favor in picking up my tab, but, but I also did nothing to de-earn it, right? See, grace is deeper than unmerited favor. It is unmerited favor, but as one pastor said it, grace is not only favor in the absence of merit, but grace is also the favor in the presence of demerit. So think about it this way. Think about my friend now. Hypothetically, let's say instead of this night being filled with joy and laughter, at some point something is said. And there's tension now, and there's a little bit of anger, and it gets a little bit heated, and we start to argue, and we start to fight. And, and in my anger, I take my glass, and I throw it in his face. <laughs> now, just to clarify, I've never done that before. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I've, I've never actually thought to do that before, um, at least not in anger. Um, may, maybe in jest, you know, but uh, no, I haven't even thought about that. But, um, but let's say I did that. Let's say I did that. And I, I totally insulted him in front of our friends. I, I shamed him in front of the entire restaurant, right? I, I, did, I did such a thing that would demerit any sort of love or favor that he would show for me. And then at the end of the night, let's say I go to pay my tab, and the waitress says, don't worry about it. That guy that you threw your drink at, he picked up your tab. That would be grace in the presence of demerit. And that's biblical grace. That's biblical grace. It is showing favor, not just when we don't deserve it. It's showing favor when we have earned the very opposite. Right? I mean, Jesus went to the cross for his enemies. Not when we were his friends. For God so loved the world that was in rebellion against him that he sent his son. We weren't in this neutral position. We weren't good, but we weren't bad. We were kind of in this in-between. No, we were in rebellion against God. And it is then that Jesus went to the cross. So yes, grace is unmerited favor, but it is much deeper than that. Grace is favor in the presence of demerit. And so that means that we don't return evil for evil. 
It means as God's people that, that we don't return injustice with injustice. It means we endure by seeking grace. Even to those who treat us poorly. Even to those who treat us unfairly. So let me give you a real example of what this looks like. I was talking to a friend this week. He told me I could share this, but I'm, I'm not going to say his name. I was talking to a friend this week who he's pretty confident he's about to be fired. He's about to be laid off in his, from his job. So he's sharing this with me, and, and he, he's pretty confident this, not because his boss told him it's coming, but because of the way his boss is posturing himself. And the things he's asking for, my, my friend can see the writing on the wall, it's coming. And as he's sharing this with me, you know, he, he's, it, it's clear that this is unfair. And it's unjust because my friend works hard. He's seeking to be faithful. He's, he's seeking to do the best that he can in his work. He's being faithful to his clients as well as to the company. And it, it is totally unfair that he's about to be laid off. And then he told me that his boss asked him to go ahead and uh, accumulate all the information about his clients and pass them on to him. And that's how my friend knows he's about to be laid off because this is what they do. Set up so they can make the transition all the more smooth, right? And so he's telling me this on the phone and my first thought was, don't do it. <laughs> right? That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, go and accumulate all that information, but keep it in your back pocket and you wait until you have another job and then when you're leaving, you can just burn the place down. Like, take the clients with... That's what I'm thinking in my head, right? No, I never said that. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> because my friend, before I could ever say that, he said, you know, basically said it's not fair, and it's not right, and I've served this company well, and, and I would love, love, love to stick it to them, but I know I need to keep being faithful. I need to keep doing my job, and I, keep need, I need to keep doing what my boss asked me to do, even when he hasn't been faithful to me. That's grace. That's being gracious. That's seeking the good of someone who doesn't deserve it. That's seeking the good of someone who has treated you poorly and unfairly. That is a real-world example. Now, if I brought my friend up here and I stood him beside me, he would say, Penny, it's not that easy. <laughs> he said, it's hard. Every fiber in my being doesn't want to do that but I know I need to be faithful. And I need to honor the calling that God has put, put upon me. To use the language of our pas passage, I know I need to endure. How can he do this? How can we do this? How can we be expected to show this sort of love and grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it? We do this by looking to God. You see, that's the reason why we endure. That is the only reason we can endure in the midst of suffering. That's what Peter called this, suffering. In the midst of sorrow. It's the only reason we can endure by submitting and seeking grace for those who don't deserve it. It's because Christ has endured. We look to Christ. That's what Peter says in verse 19. For this is grace when mindful of God. When we are mindful of him, when we consider who Christ is and what he has done, we have our reason for enduring. We have the enablement to endure. Christ is our example. That's what Peter says in verse 21. For to this you have been called. What have we been called to? To endure. 
For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. Peter is telling us that as Christians, as exiles, that our lives, our entire lives are to be modeled after Christ. That he is the exemplar to whom we follow. And how did he live? What is his life like? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You hear what he did? This one who knew no sin. This one who never spoke a word of deceit, Christ who was innocent and blameless, he suffered unjustly. Even some of his opponents recognized the fact that he was innocent. You remember the religious leaders, the the Pharisees, they brought Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. And they wanted wanted Pilate to sentence him to death. And so Pilate investigates him, He, he interrogates him, he asks him all sorts of questions. And what does Pilate say to the Pharisees and the leaders? He says, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Even Pilate recognized his innocence. Now we know that Pilate acquiesced. He gave in to the crowd and he sentenced Jesus to death, but he did so knowing that Christ was guiltless. And it wasn't even only Pilate, the centurion. Remember the Roman centurion standing at the cross. As he watched Jesus give up his breath, what did he say? He said, certainly this man was innocent. If there was ever one who was treated unfairly, if there was ever one who suffered injustice, it was Christ. And yet, though innocent, though undeserving of this treatment, this is exactly what he did. He endured. He could have called down angels and destroyed and defeated his enemies. He could have called down angels and they could have ministered to him in his time of weakness and need. But that's not what he did. He endured the cross. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He scorned its shame. This is the example that's put before us. You see, the founder and perfecter of our faith suffered. His life is now the example for us. It was Saint Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, who in his book, The City of God, he put it this way. It was in your reflections this morning. He said, it is nothing but folly, nothing but pitiable aberration to humble yourself before a being whom you would hate to resemble in the conduct of your life and to worship one whom you would refuse to imitate. For surely the supremely important thing in religion is to model oneself on the object of one's worship. What Augustine is telling us is that the one that we worship, that if we are trusting in Christ, if our faith is in him, then his life becomes the model for our life. Not just his victory, not just his ascension, not just his exaltation, but even in his humility, that becomes the model for our life. It was he who said, Deny yourself, take up your cross. It was he who said, if the world would hate me, won't they hate you as well? His life becomes the model for our lives. And so we endure because he endured. But why did Christ endure? Why would he go through this? 
Well, he does this to be our substitute. You see, Jesus is not just our example. He's also our substitute. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He is our substitute. That means he bears our sins on himself. He died in our place so that we would die to sin and we would live to righteousness. We would live as he lives. His blood was shed so that by his wounds you would be healed. Friends, don't miss this. Christ is our example, but without him taking our place, without him acting as our substitute, we could try to emulate his life, but we're just then dead men walking. There are those who have studied the life of Christ, and they've said he's a moral man, he's a wise sage, he's a good teacher, he's a great prophet. His life is worthy to model your life after. But if he is not your substitute, then you can try and model your life after him, but you are still in your sins. He must be more than example. He must also be substitute. And that's what he is. He is much more than an example. He's much more than just another religious figure. He is God incarnate. The one who atones for the sins of his people, and he did it by giving of himself. That is why we emulate our lives after his. Because he did what no one else could do. And he did it for you. He took your sins upon himself. And he died in your stead. He's our substitute. He's our example. But also Christ is our shepherd. That's how the passage ends in verse 25. Peter says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Having returned, that, that phrase, have returned, we should take it in the passive sense, have been returned. That Christ's atoning work on, our, on the cross brings us to himself. He is our shepherd. And as our shepherd, it means that he is with us. Right? That a shepherd is with his sheep, that he cares for us, that in the midst of suffering and sorrow, in the midst of needing to endure, Christ is with us. He is near to his people. But a shepherd doesn't just be with his people. A shepherd also oversees his people. He protects them. And Peter makes that explicit when he says that Christ is the overseer of your souls. You see, it is in Christ's charge to protect and preserve his people. To protect your souls. And think about how encouraging this would have been for Peter's hearers. Those people who are experiencing trial and difficulty, suffering and sorrow, to, to hear that, that their suffering was not the final word over their lives. To hear that, that Christ, who, whose life they were to model their lives after, who, who Christ, who was their substitute, was, was also the one who cares for them and protects them. That they may suffer in this life for a moment, but that their souls we're safe in Christ. What a wonderful word for them to hear, but what a wonderful word for us. Because, friends, you may have in the past been reviled for doing good. And you may tomorrow be dreading the difficulty that awaits you in your place of work. And you may in the future be treated with scorn. But no. 
No, even though we are people of exile and people of trial and difficulty and people who experience sorrow and suffering, know that we endure. And we are to endure because Christ, our example, has endured and showed us the way. We are to endure because Christ, our substitute, has endured and he has borne our sins. We are to endure because our shepherd has endured. And he saves your soul. He preserves it. Our suffering, our sorrow, our trial, and our difficulty, they are not the end. Your soul is safe in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have given your life. We thank you that you, you came and you atoned for sin. That you took our sin upon yourself and you showered us with grace, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it far from it, but because of your love and your care, because you are gracious and kind, because you are merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding with loving kindness. And for that, we worship you and ask that you would help us now as we go about our days, as we live in, in this world, that you would help us to endure, endure the difficulties that arise, endure the, the sorrows that we experience, endure because you, Lord Jesus, have endured and because you go with us. Impress this upon us now. Allow us to take hope and comfort in this truth. We pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen.